Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we're very pleased to have comrade, fellow podcaster, grad student, brilliant man, writer, um, all kinds of wonderful things to say about our guest, Maximilian Alvarez. Welcome back to the pod, Max. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me back on. And we're here to talk to Max about a topic close to his heart. Uh, you know, Max has a great podcast, the Working People Podcast, and there's all kinds of issues regarding organizing labor, the uh, fight and struggle against neoliberalism, and one of those sites of struggle is the university. Very important site of struggle. And we, we're going to talk today about neoliberalism and higher education, both in terms of what we should hope for and what higher education could and should be, right, as lefties, as socialists, um, but then what the current state of affairs is today, what it has been historically, and how neo- neoliberalism has corrupted it and done harm to uh, the workers, the students, uh, all involved such that as a, as a site of uh, public good and emancipation, potentially, it is becoming more and more corrosive and deleterious to our uh, our polis. So um, I'm going to kick it off by just asking Max to talk a bit about uh, how personally and theoretically you have come to be confronted by this problem and uh, how it's made you think through uh, kind of what it poses as a danger to us today. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, I, 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 I really don't think that I, um, that I could talk about it, um, you know, without that kind of personal element, to be honest, because, um, you know, I did my, my undergrad, um, along with my, my brother, Zach, we both went to the University of Chicago, um, and, you know, I think that they're, you know, coming from Southern California, like entering this kind of Ivy covered, um, you know, kind of throwback to, to the kind of mythological days of the university. Like, you know, I don't think we really kind of knew how to, to kind of pick up the nuances or, or dig under the surface of, of what we were seeing and experiencing. I think we were still just, you know, taking taking everything at at face value and just trying to learn as much as as we could. But then, um, you know, like I graduated from U Chicago in two thousand nine, uh, so not not a great time <laughs> to kind of be spat <laughs> out into uh, into the real world. And um, you know, then I then I went and got a master's in England. Um, I'd done a year abroad at the University of Bristol. And had made a lot of friends there in the faculty and and outside of it. And so I went back there, did a master's. And then when I finished that, I came home. And, I mean, everything back home was falling apart. Right? And, and, um, you know, I've written about this and I've talked about it on, you know, working people a lot. Like the the very first episode that I ever did was with my dad, um, Jesus Alvarez. And, you know, we talked about you know his working life but also you know the experience of our family losing everything in the recession right including the the house that i grew up in right and and my dad kind of you know my my mom my dad and all of us right you know but but especially my dad as a mexican immigrant having grown up dirt poor in mexico um and and then kind of being separated from his siblings and growing up in foster care in the united states Right. I could just see kind of how, um, 
how much it was weighing on him um, and how much he was punishing himself, um, you know, because of this notion in his head that he had um, that he had, you know, like had and lost this this kind of infinite thing of the American dream and that it was all gone. And he describes that on the first episode. And, you know, but while all this was happening, right, like I like the 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 kind of rose colored glasses, you know, about what my education meant for me and my family were ripped off very quickly. Right. I come home to Southern California uh, where the market has just like, you know, crashed, especially the real estate market, which both of my folks, you know, like uh, their uh, careers were tied up in the real estate market. Um, you know, we just had nothing. We, and we were scrambling to, to scrap together any money that we could. And, you know, it'll, it, it may not come as a surprise to anyone that at that moment, two degrees in Russian literature didn't really mean shit <laughs> when I was trying to find a job. Right. So like, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to kind of move back and kind of find my feet and I thought I could get a job, help out a bit back home and kind of figure out what the next step was. And, um, you know, just months and months um, after that point and me just kind of applying to any and every job that I could find and, and ending up with nothing. And, you know, the whole time I was like, I was taking, you know, stuff off my resumes. I was, I was getting rid of the masters and I even started getting rid of the, the degree from, from U Chicago. And I was like, look, I'm just, I'm a warm body who can do work. Like, just give me something. And I mean, like I'd, I'd worked shitty jobs, you know, since I was 16, it wasn't a problem. And I was like, I, I just need to eat. Right. But, um, you know, we, we were all in this kind of situation. I say we, you know, is like, you know, the, the, the population in general, we were all foundering, um, to, to find some way to kind of get back on track or, or to find some sort of sense of stability in a world that had been forever changed by the financial crash. And, you know, it was in that time that, you know, when when food when food was really on the line, you know, the the only way that I could get a paycheck was to show up to these, um, you know, kind of blue collar temp agencies in Southern California at like three thirty in the morning, and you know, it was me with um, predominantly a bunch of other Latino men, some undocumented, and we would just kind of sit around. Uh, in like the only time in Southern California when it's actually really cold, like at three thirty in the morning, um, <laughs> in the winter, and we would just kind of sit around huddled together, not talking too much, but we were more talking to keep warm, I think. Um, and one by one, you know, they, the temp agency would get kind of notices that they needed, you know, two guys at this warehouse. They needed four guys, you know, like to, to load trucks, yada, yada. And, um, you know, I, I, I ended up kind of just working at a bunch of different warehouses and factories, um, some which were, you know, probably too disgusting to, um, to talk about, um, here, but I've, I've written about elsewhere, like in this piece I wrote for current affairs called, um, can the working class speak? Um, and anyway, I'm, um, I'm saying all this because, um, you know, that was, that was an intense period of, um, coming to class consciousness for me, right? I mean, again, like, as I say on the show all the time, and as I've, um, you know, talked about even to my family in the, in the episodes where I've interviewed members of my own family, right? I mean, like, stories of poverty and, and, you know, working class life and, and, you know, just intense, 
um, struggle from both sides of the family, right? Those, those colored are, um, you know, the, that, that colored my childhood. I would always hear those stories from my grandpa, from my tios, from my dad. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, there was, there was just, it was in this period where all of that was really kind of made, um, more visceral for, for me than, than ever. Right. And, and, um, you know, I just started to um, see, you know, all the kind of vicious ways that um, we as a labor force, as temps in these warehouses and factories were being treated even worse than I had been, you know, treated when I was working in like fast food or retail. And then I would get to talking with my with my friends and, and other family members. And we all kind of started to realize that that more and more of us were feeling the same way, that that we were more kind of increasingly more in the same boat of experiencing like kind of an extreme um precariousness and we all felt like temps we all were were suddenly worrying about whether or not our names were even going to be on the schedule for the following week and that was something that even if you know we were working in fast food before um, it wasn't as much of a kind of constant sense of worry, right? I mean, that sense of power that, that the managers and the bosses had over us um, wasn't just up front and center every single day uh, as much as it was in the years after the recession. And so, you know, I'll, I'll fast forward a bit because, you know, after a couple of years of, of doing this work, of then kind of being a waiter in Chicago, um, you know, I ended up going back to academia and I ended up enrolling um, in a PhD program at the University of Michigan. And, you know, I was just so, I was, so, I was so relieved to kind of be back on a university campus, but I felt very kind of self-conscious because I was like, I've been out of the game for what feels like so many years and so much has happened. I don't even know if I can kind of get that, that engine going again. Um, but I did and I, and I loved it and I always loved learning and I always, to this day, right, still kind of see and feel like this kind of, um, you know, just really important, um, value that, that, um, education has and that institutions of higher education, um, the roles that they kind of play for individuals and for society writ large, um, or that they could and should be playing, right? And so, you know, I, I, but I couldn't quite look at higher education the same way that I could before, right? You know, you, the, there was no going back. There was no going back to like my, um, just kind of yeah, green, you, naive days. You've bitten of the apple, right? You, you know, the fall had occurred. Well, well, the apple bit me more like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's true. Yeah. And in, in terms of the agency, that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, I think when, when I really started to ask the kinds of questions that, um, you know, that, that we're, we're going to be talking about today and that, that a lot of people are asking today about kind of the, the political economy of higher education. For me personally and theoretically, it all started coming together in those first couple years in graduate school when, again, I was I was trying to kind of, you know, it was like uh, I was trying to think of it like, you know, I'd found a life raft. I had kind of gotten back to dry land and I was just kind of waiting to feel the same way that I had before uh, being on, you know, the University of Chicago campus or the University of Bristol campus. And I just didn't. I couldn't figure out why. And I mean... A big part of that was the fact that the first year in grad school, my folks lost, you know, the house that I grew up in and we were all scrambling, trying to kind of um, support each other and, and 
you know, I was taking out more loans to try to kind of help them out and to pay rent and stuff like that. So that that made it quite hard to just kind of feel like I was living just a life of the mind that was somehow disconnected from everything else. Like, and, and that was never the case, right? But I had that kind of naivete beforehand as an undergraduate that allowed me to kind of live with that sort of fiction. And anyway, so like along with all of that, what really started to kind of seep into, you know, my my bones, right, were just these little um, kind of droplets of, of rhetoric and kind of managerial um, tone and style and um, bureaucratic um, kind of bullshit that that really when I was trying to figure out like what does this remind me of like when this professor is telling me you know that I should be grateful to be here and that there are hundreds of of people who apply every year who are just dying to get in and that I shouldn't complain about the the long hours or the low pay like what does that remind me of and and you know I was like this reminds me of being back on the on the warehouse floor right because that's exactly what the managers would say there Right. I mean, they would they would tell us every day because, again, the vast majority of us were temps. Right. The vast majority of us, aside from like an, an evergreen crew that maybe made up like 15 percent, um, which I guess in that case you could call the tenured the tenured faculty of the warehouses and the factories. The rest of <laughs> us, you know, there we, we would show up each day. We would they would dr- drain as much productivity out of us as they possibly could. Right. We would we would skip our breaks we would be sweltering in this fucking you know hot box in southern california for you know 12 13 hour shifts we would generally go from 5 a.m to 5 p.m sometimes till six or seven um and you know at the end of each day when we were all dripping in sweat they would line us up um on the hard concrete floor of the warehouse and the managers would walk down and they would point to which one of us they wanted to come back the next day and the rest would just kind of be like, your check will be in the mail. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Uh, goodbye. All right. And so that, again, that constant kind of um, that ever present sense of precariousness and that ever present sense that kind of the blade was always hovering over your neck. Right. I mean, they that was performed in so many different ways, even when it was masked, you know, like with the kind of um, the sort of kind of bullshit benevolence um, from, from that's upper right, management. Yeah. And that's right. what I started to see in um, kind of university administrators and tenured faculty was that obviously the the type of labor was completely different. The working conditions were, were very different, but the managerial kind of ideology was very much the same. And so I started trying, I needed to figure out why that was. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole of, of finding out just how deep um, this actually goes. Right. That's so interesting because the, there is necessarily this uh, most material parallel between the, the precarity of just everyday laborers and the, the kind of labor markets that apply to so many different uh, industries and jobs, as well as, as you've written about, the, the current higher education reality is that 70% of, of faculty are contingent, uh, more, more than 70% greater than, uh, and then there is the precarity of, of the, of the grad students, the precarity of the students themselves and their futures, uh, coupled with this, uh, hegemonic ideology, as you, as you point out so 
um, evocatively in that story of you should be grateful for the benevolence that you have an opportunity to be even picked for the day for this job or to be picked by this institution or to even have your meager adjunct position, right? That, that there is this, this cruel um, kind of shadow or, you know, flip sides to the precariousness and anxiety and uh, lie that is being lived of the dream of meritocracy uh, as against the benevolence of those who have all the power and all the ability to tell us uh, that, that are precarious that we, if we are failing, it's our fault and we should just be grateful for any opportunity they deign to give us, right? Right. And I mean, you know, this is this is again where, um, you know, as I've been, you know, doing the, the show Working People where, you know, I just talk to workers from around the country about their about their lives and jobs and, and their dreams and struggles. Right. I mean, you know, we inevitably um, talk to, you know, folks who, you know, have seen these kinds of changes that you know, we kind of corralled under the umbrella of neoliberalism, right, over the past 50 years, right? They have seen that change. And, you know, it 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 ends up kind of, one of the things that ends up um, really kind of shining through is exactly what you were just saying, Alexis. Like, you have this kind of, um, I don't know, because, I mean, like, you don't want to fall into, as as um, my, my buddy David Parsons would say, this nostalgia trap, right, of pretending that um, that things were always rosy. And uh, and so I don't want I don't mean to do that. Um, but, you know, like in talking to to these workers, right, you know, there there is this kind of sense that um, that that there were certain bargains that were struck around the mid century, like around you know well even even kind of eking into the you know late 60s and early 70s right these deals that um were part of this larger process of neoliberalization um that kind of inevitably resulted in organized labor right putting down their swords and um putting down their dreams of greater collective worker ownership of factories and greater worker input in um, kind of the administration of, of commercial enterprise and instead kind of settling for kind of regular wage increases and benefits and stuff like that. And then like the kind of follow up to that process, because because I mean, I guess I guess to put like bring that down to eye level, like when I was talking to kind of GM plant workers in Ohio and, and Michigan, right? I mean, this is, this is the story of the auto unions, right? I mean, like this kind of, there, there was a very militant, um, kind of, uh, period in these auto unions where they were taking over factories, where they were occupying those factories, where they were threatening to shut down production and did shut down production for, for months. And, and, you know, they, they, they had, um, managers over a barrel in a lot of, um, ways, but through a confluence of historical factors, whether that be, um, the cold war and kind of unions purging, uh, leftists from their ranks, um, or, you know, just, uh, management, um, kind of outflanking, um, kind of union rep- representatives and, and, um, kind of not budging on issues of greater worker ownership, yada, yada, yada. If you want to know more about that, just listen to the show, I guess. Um, you know, the, I mean, the, people should listen to your show anyway, but yes, also <laughs> for, for that specifically. <laughs> I can, I concur. But, um, you know, I, I, again, it's like, you know, you, you, you have to, you know, kind of, 
try to th- these things are all so big and diffuse that that we have to try to kind of be nuanced but also try to see the trends um historically and so like you know you think of something like that um kind of decline of militancy in you know like auto unions and also kind of that that largely maps on to kind of the decline of faculty governance, you know, like in shared faculty governance at universities, right? Or, you know, a lot of other um, sectors of of the labor market, right? Kind of um, losing that dream of um, kind of collective ownership, um, greater worker um, kind of Workers having a greater say in um, production um, and the administration of um, of commercial enterprise, and instead settling for kind of this um, this fantasy of of a middle class comfortable life that um, that could be lived as and and that could be um, kind of a refuge for people who worked hard, um, even if you know like corporations and um, you know the ruling class continued to um, reap. The majority of the profits, and so that, but that slide never stopped. I guess, right? Is 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 kind of the point that I'm trying to make here? Because we go from from you know that sort of dream to then settling for kind of regular you know wage increases and benefits to then giving up on that dream to just begging to keep our jobs, right? And and that is kind of the situation where we are now, right? We are at this kind of you know. I don't want to say end stage because things can always get worse, but, you know, we are at that point now where, um, you know, far from, you know, even having any sense of um, kind of ownership over the means of production or any sense of any sort of say over um, kind of the, the administration of higher education, let alone commercial enterprise. I mean, we are all kind of essentially in the kind of position of just scrapping over each other just to survive, right? Just to kind of um, scrape by and make a living. And, you know, what I've noticed in tandem with that, to tie it back to, to what we were talking about, is that you end up getting a lot of these other kind of shadow um, benefits, right? And those shadow benefits are what we were just talking about. Like, you are lucky to be here. You're not going to get paid better for it. That, that, that doesn't mean anything kind of material. It just means that you personally should be more satisfied that you have some place to go to work um, when when there are people who, you know, like, uh, don't, right? And, and so, like, that's, that's kind of the situation that we've, that we've ended up at. So right. can I ask Max? Or just, sorry, let me real quick, Ryan. Let me just jump in. Um, it's it's I'm workers workers of the world unite, and the history is super important to understand how neoliberalism has done to academia what it has done to so many other industries and markets, uh, and, and to understand how it isn't some uh, ethereal ivory tower that that has none of these ravages um, and problems in the past, not just today, um, that that workers have to go through. So I want to see, and you, you mentioned faculty governance as, as one uh, crucial thing that that is being uh, lost because of of the, the failure of unions, or or the uh, I should say that the, the way that neoliberalism has harmed uh, the power to collectively bargain. Um, I also wonder because. 
I don't want to, on the one hand, say that higher education is so distinct and different from other work, and this leads us to the problem of saying that you should do what you love because you love it, and it's different from you know working in a steel mill or something. Um, and and of course, but on the other hand, I also don't want to say that it's it's just a, a, a you know the the bourgeois jobs like like law students and lawyers are also being affected by neoliberalism. Uh, isn't there also something about the functioning of a democracy uh, that is itself the heart of democracy being attacked and corroded by the ideology and the material conditions being changed um, when neoliberalism affects higher education in this way, which is to say that dream you had maybe wasn't just about kind of uh, buying into the meritocracy that capitalism sells in any job, but has something to do with the nature of education as an end and the ways in which these institutions uh, are supposed to be buffeted even within capitalism, right? From non-market, you know, as, as a non-market institution, uh, and from those market norms. And isn't there something we should be aware of in the ways that uh, these problems affect the variability for us to resist capitalism and, and effectuate radical change? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I think it's it's a really important um, point to stew on. Right. When we're trying to kind of um, when we're trying to par parse out what what we mean by, you know, the neoliberalization of higher education. Right. Because I know I know there's I mean, it's not it's not a new topic. Uh, we've been kind of having this debate for like 10 years now. Um, but, you know, if you if you go on Twitter, you'll see kind of this kind of factionalism where people are saying like, oh, a lot of people on the left are using the term neoliberalism to the point where no one really knows what it means, right? And so, you know, it is important to not just um, kind of cry neoliberalism every every two seconds and let that kind of um, term, that real historical um, material kind of shift uh, lose kind of its its meaning um, in, in terms of what we're talking about here. And I think that you know like when i when i think of like you know uh neoliberalism in its kind of infiltration and takeover of higher education right i mean, i i guess i tend to think of it as like um it's kind of being broken up into into three general parts and again these are these are these are quite general but it's all for the point all for the hope of like trying to give some definition to um to what we're talking about when we say that like universities have changed right they were they were something different when you know in the in the post war boom they were something different before the post war boom right universities are different in every kind of um you know historical geographic context right you know universities in the soviet union were guided towards different aims and thus had different forms of teaching and produced different kinds of scholarship right universities um kind of you know or or like proto universities um in kind of you know the medieval times or even before um with kind of um these like muslim learning um uh, kind of groups like the, the, these all are kind of attuned to the historical conditions um, of the time and place that they're a part of, right? And so what we're trying to say is that under the age of this kind of neoliberal turn, universities and colleges have 
taken a different shape. They have changed the ways that they operate and that changes what they produce and the experience that people have in them and the, and the functions, as you said, um, that they serve in our political economy, right? And in our democracy. And so in that vein, you know, I, I tend to think of like neoliberalism, um, kind of first, in in this kind of broader sense that you know like like obviously colleges and universities always need money to stay afloat that wasn't that wasn't um kind of different um before this neoliberal turn but um you know these these colleges and universities got a lot more of that money from the state right um from their individual states but also from the federal government through kind of um you know, uh, kind of subsidized plans like the GI Bill, right? That that essentially made. Um, I mean, granted, it 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 excluded a, a lot of people, but for um, kind of a lot of others, um, predominantly um, white people, um, you know, it made it much more possible for kind of working class um, people to go and get a college education for next to nothing. Right. And and so, again, colleges and universities always need money. That's not different. But, you know, we could we could, I think, start thinking about um, what the neoliberal shift in higher education means. Right. We could start thinking of it as, you know, a shift that has more or less like transitioned academic institutions into commercial institutions. Right. That that has become uh, the primary function of institutions of higher education. Right. The primary source of, of value uh for for a university is you know it's it's kind of collective and and variable abilities to be sites of capital investment right that 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 will generate profits for for commercial actors and for private interests right i mean that's that's why you start to see this boom in um kind of college athletics and television contracts and you know sponsors with um apparel um companies and um kind of department individual departments relying more and more on individual grants and grants coming from private industry um a lot more of basic university functions being outsourced to private contractors yada 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 right the university itself becomes way less of a kind of um you know, more more enclosed ecosystem and more of kind of like a node within the broader political economy um, whose whose primary means of survival is to provide um, kind of incentives for capital investment and returns on that investment. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just um, going to say to just to draw that point out explicitly, you know, I was I was going to ask previously um, that. uh it's worth thinking about this maybe just a little more um, uh, explicitly because, you know, when you're talking about Amazon warehouse workers or whatever, you know, the the, the people out there s- slaving in the fields and whatnot, um, you see exactly why the the labor exploitation is so horrible because there's the direct profit motive provided by market institutions for the managers to wring out the most possible work for the least amount of money, right? Makes makes perfect sense in terms of logic. But you think about a university, university is, uh, you know, in terms of its conception, a sort of classically socialist type of thing. You know, the state sets it up, typically the state funds it, and the purpose is, is not to you know, sell commodities in the market. 
the purpose is to like increase the you know background knowledge experience or whatever of the the population and so you know as you as you say like the you know i think it's exactly right that the neoliberal turn in higher education is all about market logic penetrating the university space and transforming it into you know a sort of engine of you know op- producing obedient workers or whatever but that 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 took uh, deliberate policy steps because it's not a natural outgrowth of how the university would function in terms of you know market because it's not really involved in the market um so so maybe could you speak a little bit more about like where that comes from like what are the decisions that people are taking um to to make universities this, into this sort of like funhouse mirror simulacra of uh, a business yeah, I mean, like, and again, um, I think once you once you start going down that rabbit hole, um, you fall pretty deep. And and there are fortunately a lot of really great um, pieces of of scholarship that have been produced in this kind of burgeoning field called um, you know critical university studies. There's actually um, kind of a, a a new series um, for Johns Hopkins University Press that's being edited by um, kind of two major figures in that Jeff uh, Williams and Chris Newfield and they're they're trying to kind of um, pump out books that that really kind of trace the the various contours of this neoliberal shift um, and and you know along with that again I would say yeah like check out Jeff's work check out Chris Newfield's work check out the work of um, Mark Biscay and you know just there there's so many great works also done by you know scholars of colors uh, women um, and and that that I think have really started to kind of fill in the gaps of our earlier critical university studies discourse and I wouldn't be able to give everybody um, kind of like a full accounting of that because there are too many. But I did try to compile a fair amount of these in an article I wrote for The Baffler called um, Contingent No More, where at the bottom of that article, I tried to make kind of like a mini library of links to books and articles that, you know, will kind of provide people with an entryway of, of learning what critical university studies is and the questions that it's, that are being asked um, and how question, questions of like gender and race and class and labor and all that, right, kind of play into this larger neoliberal shift that could give it much finer contours as you're, as you're saying, Ryan. But, um, you know, I would also point um, to the work being done by non-tenured scholars, right? Like, um, Trevor Griffey at, uh, has written great stuff for like Lacha and, and Lacha, um, you know, is, is, um, also producing a lot of great articles on this. There's a great, uh, new magazine called Contingent Magazine run by Aaron Bartram and, and, um, and her comrades that's really focusing on, um, showcasing the work of non-tenured, um, scholars. And so I would, I would highly encourage people to check that out. But, um, you know, I guess Ren to, to kind of, um, answer, answer your question, um, here and now. I mean, like the, the concrete things that we could point to is that, you know, that, that state budgets for higher education were slashed dramatically, right? And this is, and, and, and that, um, you know, in term, universities had to kind of figure out where they were going to get that money to survive and, um, who was going to pay for it, right? And so, you know, this, this is, I think the main turning point we tend to look at is like, 
you know, as we do in the broader schema of, of neoliberalism in general, we tend to see kind of the, the 1980s and kind of the Reagan-Thatcher revolution as being a pivotal point in, in that shift. And, you know, it's not it's, – it, it's also the case for higher education, right? I mean, like, shit, in – you know, like 1980 or something, I, I think it was 1980, um, you know, spending on higher education was was like gutted by by up to 25 percent um, between 1980 and 1985. And, you know, the 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 that essentially kind of meant that um, that universities were going to shift um, kind of costs uh not to be absorbed by kind of government grants and and state funding but they would be pushing that off to students uh in the form of debt right and that the government would in, instead of subsidizing education um through these grants and through support for institutions of higher education the government essentially became, you know, a, a loan shark for for new students, right? And 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 this is also really political, right? I mean, I I, I don't think I think you would have to kind of um, be incredibly uh, naive to think it isn't. I mean, Reagan's entire political career was in in a large part launched by his kind of you know um, push against kind of the the student radicalism of the sixties. Right. I mean, in many ways, his California political career was kind of launched by shitting on the students at Berkeley. Right. And so, you know, when when we look around at the scene today and we see that, you know, we have an entire generations that are just laden with unforgivable debt and that we have a you know secretary of education who is like pushing to give more power to the, you know, to the debt, <laughs> to, to the, you know, like loan companies and give and take even more power away from the debtors. Right. I mean, that's that's a political question. There's a reason for that. Right. There's a reason why um, to the points that you all were making earlier, there's a reason why, along with all of these kind of like real material shifts um, that have resulted in universities becoming more dependent on student loans and private sources of, of funding, private donors, um, corporate partnerships, right? All, all of that is these universities scrambling to kind of, um, you know, make up for the loss in, in public funding that they used to get, right? And then along with that, right, there, there are these other kinds of um, shifts that have happened where, um, you know, to Ryan, to your point that, um, you know, la the labor relations at, in higher education have just been completely turned upside down where, you know, since the 1970s, we've gone from like tenured and tenure track faculty making up about around 70 percent of the teaching force at universities and non tenure track um, people making up around 30 percent. That number is now flipped, as Alexios was saying. Like now, non-tenure track, um, you know, teaching is is largely made up around seventy percent of which by non-tenure track faculty, right? By adjuncts, by lecturers, part time and full time, by graduate students, right? And not by tenured faculty. And so, again, these are the material um, things to Ryan's point that that have when we say neoliberalism, this is kind of like what it looks like. Right. But also it's not uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that it's not a coincidence that at the same time that all of this is happening. Right. The kind of cultural air conditioning that makes this palatable for the population involves a kind of endless war on universities and, and students and faculty themselves. Right. On 
things like kind of political correctness and on this kind of you get this hyper focus on this archetype of of you know college faculty being like you know these lazy arm patch wearing um marxists who you know don't have to work that hard <laughs> and and i mean all these all these kind of fables and fantasies and all this kind of you know it, oh, propaganda as jordan J- jordan peterson would say the postmodern neo marxists apparently <laughs> <laughs> right exactly uh, this is no and this i think we we both were talking uh, or all three of us were talking about just this recent op-ed that was almost celebrating the, the failure of universities so that you could shut down all humanities departments because those are the bastions of the political, uh, politically correct, right? Of, of these kind of social justice warriors who need their trigger warnings in their safe spaces. And so, so the, this, uh, cause I, I'd like to get into, to even more of the ideological, you know, like the superstructure that, that works with the structure and how, uh, the reactionary forces take advantage of how capitalism destabilizes and corrodes, uh, the public goods to which we're working in order to, to, to then interact with uh, basically assholes like this guy who want to take advantage of those kind of um, scarcity constraints in order to get rid for ideological reasons of, of thinking really, and of actual concern for emancipatory politics uh, or ideologies that support it. This is not that different from what Bolsonaro is doing in, in Brazil, right? Like, so, so, so there, there's, like you said, it's political. There's so much bound up with this that, it's it's hard to kind of uh disentangle all the all the things that are going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and um you know, I I I kind of jotted down the the bullet points cuz um cuz I know that once I get talking about this we um as we're doing here like they, like you said there's so much in there that you end up kind of uh there're too many bones for us to latch onto. And so I guess to 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 kind of um again like give some sort of framework to this when I, when I'm trying to think of what neoliberalism means in the context of higher education and, and even beyond higher education. Right. I mean, there is that core uh, in the Marxist sense, kind of the change to the, um, the base that is kind of, um, you know, universities being um, kind of public institutions or, or publicly subsidized, heavily publicly subsidized institutions um, transitioning um, more and more to kind of commercial institutions and relying on funding uh, structures that, that correspond to that. And along with that, you know, a second kind of pillar to this is as, as Ryan was saying, like this, this transition, it, 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 it like requires that, you know, like like in other sectors around the economy, like like you know, like with Amazon, like um, you know, shit anywhere, right? It requires a systematic um, like dismantling of collective labor power, and and the implementation of like just brutal systems of of disciplining labor, right? I mean, this is something that I talked to the labor um, scholar and activist Sam Gindin um, about on the show, is that he talks about neoliberalism as a form of labor discipline, right? And this is something that you know, I mean, and and that's that itself is kind of a, an opaque term because I think there are multiple ways of of disciplining labor, right? I mean, in like the the nineteen nineties, Alan Greenspan was freaking like applauded for saying that the economy was great because that of labor being more precarious, because of workers being more insecure, right? And everyone was like, oh yeah, thank God, you know, that means that there's going to be like less, <laughs> fewer fewer strikes, you know, like less uh, less contingencies on the labor side 
right? And what that translates to for us. That's that's also, Max, because it's really people that call out racism that start the conflict. That's where the divisiveness. If if everybody would just stop protesting and stop calling out things that are wrong, all the actual divisiveness in the world would go away. Isn't that, oh. isn't that the same, the same idea, right? Like it's the same, it's the same basic allegation, right? That, that those that are fighting for the, the struggle are the, are the source of the problems because they disrupt the status quo, right? Yeah. You're, gonna, you're, you're making my eye twitch over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, like, and, and, and to that point, um, again, like the, the, the ways of disciplining labor, because I think, I, I, I guess in my own way, um, and, and this is, you know, kind of uh, it's it's stuff that i've learned from you know a lot of other people who have written on this subject but you know i I tend to think of neoliberalism as um if not primarily like substantively um a mode a historical mode of breaking the back of collective labor power like that that was its mo right you know that that in order to institute this kind of market logic um throughout all sectors of society you need to shatter kind of the bulwark of collective labor and and we've seen that in higher education right we have seen that turn to flexibilization that turn towards um away from the tenure track away from um kind of job security um in the economy writ large right i mean like shit like upward mobility and the the dream of kind of like being a company man and and spending your whole career and retiring with the gold watch like that doesn't exist for for most of our generation and it's not going to and so like that that's what i point to when i say like you want to know what neoliberalism is it's destroying that right it is it is kind of it is an amplification of the contradictions of capitalism that, um, you know, uh, continue to um, concentrate power and wealth and resources in the hands of a small few while homogenizing um, and disciplining this massive pool of surplus labor, as as Marx would say. Right. And and in order to do that, you have multiple forms of discipline because you have, I guess, in the university context, we'll stick to that. You have like the hard discipline, right, of like top down budget cuts and firings and, you know, a high, we get these high profile firings, you know, and shit in, in the news and stuff like that. Uh, when when, you know, university deans and boards of trustees are caving to kind of public pressure from the right or the left. I mean, the right mainly, (laughs) but, um, you know, uh, along with that kind of hard discipline, I think what's much more pervasive is the, you know, the forms of like soft discipline and, and self discipline, the ways that neoliberalism becomes the most, um, kind of successful dictatorship by making all of us the police, right. You know, by policing ourselves and policing each other because we're kind of forced to we are put in an economic situation uh where we are trying to survive in a system of precarity where everyone is looking over their shoulders and you know everyone has this sense that kind of banding together or showing solidarity with your fellow workers is only going to mean that that someone else gets the job and you don't eat right and so if you can like think of that as kind of a driving force for this um kind of contingent uh th- this contingent labor force that has exploded not only in academia but around the country 
Right. I mean, it, you start to see it in a different light. You start to wonder uh, why this is becoming so pervasive and who it's actually serving, because it's not serving us, the workers. Right. It is making us way more um, compliant in terms of um, in terms of being good kind of capitalist subjects who not only discipline each other by constantly being at each other's throats. But who discipline ourselves, right? When we internalize the, the, the desires and the, and the mythologies and, and, you know, the, the kind of fables of self-worth that correspond to, um, you know, to the, the incentive structures of neoliberalism. And you see that in academia, right? You see that, um, so many of us are, are, are kind of, process through this system in the hopes that we will get that stable, upwardly mobile, tenured job, only to realize that for the vast, vast majority of us, I can't overstate how how few of us will actually get there. And I also want to add that like the people who are actually in those jobs are are mostly miserable, right? Because they find out that it's not what it what they thought it was either. Right. And so you start to wonder like what is this mythology of like the comfortable tenured professor sitting in their office and reading all day? Like if that if that myth is still around, but no one, you know, seems to believe that it actually exists, or no one who works in higher education believes it exists, except for like maybe a few venerable, like, you know, older professors then why the fuck do we still abide by it? Why do we still, like, shoot for it? Why do we still want to be it when we know it's not there, right? It becomes this kind of cruel optimism, as as Lauren Ballant would, would put it, where we are actually hurting ourselves by wanting this thing. Um, and, um, you know, and I've been going on for, a, for a, a while there, but that I think that second pillar of understanding neoliberalism as kind of the disciplining of, of the labor force and the kind of collective backbreaking of organized labor power is really essential. And then and then the third kind of pillar of understanding neoliberalism, uh, to your point, Alexis, is is kind of the the destruction of education as a public good as such. Right? The destruct the the kind of total dismantling not only of the infrastructure that makes higher education kind of a um a pathway to greater financial, socioeconomic, and even cultural capital, right? But that, you know, also a dismantling of kind of the the, ideolo- the ideology of higher education as something that is good for democracy and that is good for um, working people in this, um, in this economy, right? Instead, like, you know, what we get is, you know, just this kind of, never-ending effort to convince the public that higher education is not a public good. Um, it is not a place where the public's interests are are being served. Um, and we just hammer away at these kinds of archetypes, again, of the, the politically correct, blue-haired, you know, like students who need to be disciplined by getting expelled or by getting you know, punish them by by making them pay even more student loans or making those loans um, unforgivable that they can't default on. Like all these are forms of of not only disciplining the yeah. people who work there, but also dismantling but students, kind of the, the public sense. Yeah, and dismantling the public sense that um, that anyone should should sympathize with them. Right, right. The, the caricature of these uh, entitled students who need their safe spaces is such – because you write brilliantly about images and myths and what they do and how they shape our desires and, and how they influence us uh, in you know, participating in this hegemonic ideology. Uh, 
but the students I encounter, right? I don't know about you, but the students I encounter are the opposite of entitled and privileged and just uh, wanting to cry and go to their safe spaces. These students fucking pay to print a page from the printer in the library. They're working all the time. They have too many courses. They pick their majors and minors based on whether they, they think and try to predict if the employers will pick them because of that. They're, they're just constantly anxious. They're totally focused on grades, not because that's a marker of their ability to know anything, but because they think that will help them not have to worry about having a roof over their head, which is very understandable. But it's, it's the the opposite of the internal goods to which you would think an institution of higher learning would be about, right? And it cultivates all the wrong habits. And you talk about habitus and, and the ways in which these structures really uh, shape what we can, I mean, how we act, what we can imagine. Um, these poor students, I, I just want the classroom to be a, a space, even within capitalism, where they can take some time to think about who they are, where we should be going, find wonder, joy. Instead, I literally have students coming to me, should I major in uh, this and then minor in Spanish because Spanish might help me get, it's all instrumentalized. And, and I just want to say, I don't know, do you like languages? <laughs> do, do, you know, do, do, are you interested? Do you have any, because, and, and thankfully for me, I can make an argument to them that actually the things that they end up enjoying will help them get the grades they need that make them cultivate the skills that will impress employers. Cause I always tack that on because they'll never fully buy into the whole, it's an end in itself. You should just, you know, be in it for the learning. I get the actual existential reality that they're facing, right? Um, but it's just such a travesty to me that everything is so instrumentalized besides the trauma that they go through. Of course, we're shaping the people that then will reinforce these kind of uh, ideological forces that perpetuate everything against what socialism would want to envision and and create, right? Yeah. So I I have, I have two points um, to kind of follow up on that, but I wanted to, I wanted to see, uh, I was curious to know, um, kind of Ryan's thoughts on, on this, this impression, uh, that we've gotten of like what college students look like and what they're actually doing. Kind of how, Ryan, have you seen that change over the years? (laughs) Well, I mean, I've been a student for a long time. I went, you know, I, I went to read college for undergrad. And that's about the most blue-haired, you know, <laughs> safe space sort of stereotype you could imagine. Um, but no, not at all. I mean, there, you know, I remember my freshman year, there was some controversy uh, uh, because there was a debate between one of the professors there and David Horowitz. And Ugh. I forget the name of the professor, but but he basically was just like, this guy's a clown, he's a fraud, and his, he's just absolute garbage, and, and it was like just very rude. And the guy was v- very offended. Um, but I guess, you know, it seems like the, the you know, the, this ideological attack on university education as such, I mean, the, 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 the fraudulence of it could not be more obvious. You know, you, you have like a handful of, you know, maybe arguably somewhat controversial incidents where like they sh- like students shout at Milo Yiannopoulos or something. Um, <laughs> there are what, like 3,400 institutions of higher education in this country. And there's like probably 
double digits tops instances of this happening uh, in an entire year. Like the vast majority of, of, of colleges and universities have never experienced this uh, uh, in the last five years. And it it just, you know, the the like back in the blog blogosphere days, we used to talk about the puke funnel, um, where you would go from right wing blogs uh, to Drudge to Fox News, um, <laughs> and this seems like it's just a similar thing. Any of these little tiny controversies where students who maybe you know slightly over their skis ideologically are a little more angry than they might in a perfect world be, um, you know. Uh, rationally expected to be uh, gets just blown wildly out of proportion. And you see this column by like Roger Kimball's like, we just need to abolish uh, humanities departments entirely. Just get rid of them. And from the same people, by the way, who are, who are saying, Oh yeah, w- Western civilization is under attack by the left. You know, we need to, we need to defend the legacy of, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Isaac Newton and, you know, St. Augustine and so on. And, you know, it, 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 the, 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 the ridiculousness of it is, is just so apparent. And the function of it ideologically, as you say, um, and economically to, to discipline the labor force, to make it, make it clear that the university education is not about uh, any sort of social protest or self-expression or self-discovery or anything like that. It's learning how to take orders. That's what they want the universities to be, and that's what they'll. That's what they will. You know, will continually push for. I would imagine as as uh, as as long as they can do it. Yeah, that the Foucauldian discipline and punish is alive and well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe as we transition to the sites of struggle and how. Uh, because we have, you know, the, this NLRB decision that might be uh, revisited um, from Columbia now that will possibly relate to, you know, University of Chicago, your your alma mater, and the the grad students there who are, who are trying to unionize. Um, you know, the NLRB made a, a ruling that grad students uh, are workers and 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 so have the the rights of, of collective bargaining. Um, before we we get into that as a potential. Um, source of how we can collectively fight and how we can support those that are on the ground fighting for uh, a change, you know, be a bulwark against the neoliberalism's uh, corrosive effects on higher education. What, what beyond, again, specifically to education as opposed to, to, to any other industry necessarily, what, what would uh, a socialist envision higher education looking like like what beyond throwing off the yoke of uh oppression from the kind of managerial uh way that it's it's run and 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 because of the 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 way that capital simply controls you know from the stem promotion to the the precariousness what would be the flip side of that what would be the way we can have our political imagination um shaped towards what we would want to be once we hopefully defeat those forces would you say i mean i think i think it's a great question i think it's um it it is the kind of question in many uh respects right because um you know in a way we can't um we're always going to kind of be on our heels if we are kind of 
trying to to defend against kind of the perpetual onslaught of kind of the top down imposition of of neoliberalism um onto the university and to higher education writ large um but we also as as with organizing in general right you need to have a vision of what you're fighting for right and 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 um you know what you want you you know you need a vision of a life that is fulfilling and equitable and and just and joyful and i think it's 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 really incumbent upon us to to think long and hard about what that would look like in the context of higher education right and that and in that regard it, it, it we can't just kind of you know go back to the old days, right? I mean, having more faculty, shared faculty governance like we used to and less of a kind of, you know, uh, hegemonic, massive, you know, like administrative uh, network kind of lording over um, universities and colleges. Yeah, that's important. But also it's not it's not it's not the end all be all you know like of what we what we need to do right we need to um kind of try to think about all the ways all the forms of scholarship that are not being produced because of you know all the shit that we've been talking about because everyone is so worried about just keeping their jobs or because you know on the student side students aren't taking these sorts of classes that we want to teach because they're terrified that it will not lead to a career that will allow them to pay off their student loans, right? And, and you know, like, it's just so wasteful, right? This whole system is so wasteful of the potential that learning itself has and that institutions of higher education can, you know, the roles that they can play in in unlocking kind of the, the inherent kind of creativity and collaboration and, and future-looking um, um, energies of, of our population, Right. I mean, we're wasting all of that just to kind of um, make a buck for for, you know, private interests and and kind of, um, you know, a handful of wealthy few who are really lording over kind of this entire system. Right. And and um, so I think it's really important. And, and I, I count myself as part of this kind of group of, of young scholars in the critical university studies tradition who are trying to think about, um, yeah, what those new, what those forms of scholarship and, and um, scholarly collaboration and teaching and, and politics kind of would look like, you know, the thing that I think I've, I've written most about is kind of how all of these big um, historical material changes that we call the neoliberalization of higher education, like what that looks like for, um, campus politics, right, and and how that is translated to, um, you know, the ways that that students and graduate students and faculty and communities, surrounding communities, how they engage um, politically, you know, in and around um, higher education, right, and how so many possibilities for political engagement are are limited or cut off by the kind of structures that have been put in place over the past half century, everything that we've been talking about, right? And I guess to, um, you know, remembering Ryan's point about um, kind of bringing things down to eye level, like one of the, I think one of the easiest things to point to when I talk to people about like the the writing that I do and the points that I'm trying to make about this is like, you know, when you look at, again, 
it, it all starts to kind of seem connected where we were talking about Reagan as kind of being a pivotal figure and his administration being, you know, incredibly p- pivotal um, along with the coalition of like Republicans and, and conservative Democrats who worked with him to do this. Right. You know, that being a pivotal moment where um, kind of the floodgates were, were opened um, to this kind of you know neoliberal shift in higher education, that being linked to kind of this long simmering resentment towards um, kind of the student movements of the 60s and early 70s, right? It wasn't for nothing that students at Kent State were gunned down by you know state police forces, right? I mean there was a there was a real visceral hatred for the kind of political mobilizations that we were seeing on campuses. And that hasn't gone away, right? That's why it's so hard to fight against kind of the cultural air conditioning that we get every day from right-wing media, but also from like kind of the, the liberal managerial class. I mean, you know, governor Jerry Brown in California bought into this and he said that universities need to be like uh Chipotle, right. And, and where you just kind of take, uh, take bits and bobs and, and put it in your burrito and yada, yada. And Obama, let's, let's of, roast, let's roast those liberals. We need to fucking ro- roast the liberals here. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're so complicit in this shit. Oh, my god i i mean it's not necessarily the the reactionary forces that are to blame for things like i mean i swear i I know faculty at other institutions who say they get amazing reviews everything's going great and they're asked well what did you do to innovate this year you know how did you change your course in an innovative way and the the professor's like to what pedagogical end no no an end in itself innovation's an end in itself and and the the way they assess learning is just ridiculous and everything everything and the, the the move towards adjuncts and online presupposes this kind of like you know fungibility of of people because they think of of knowledge as simply like the same way they think of of everything as just something that can be mechanized and that you can just like do interchangeable parts and you don't you hardly need the human beings at all right and, and so the liberals are totally complicit in this i think in so many ways yeah i mean i i i would say so i would say that um you know anyone who has um bought into this um this notion that higher education um can can serve you know the the public good uh by operating on on market logics by by you know neoliberal um logic has has had a hand in creating the the kind of you know situation that we're living in today where just an entire generation is just um crushed by debt where the labor force at uh in institutions of higher education is um is living so precariously um you know not knowing if they're going to be hired in the next semester um getting paid shit wages not to mention all of the kind of forms of scholarship and teaching and public engagement that we are losing because of all of that i mean it's a, it's a it's a really dire situation um and you know, again, like to 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 go to your point um, about the the sites of political struggle, it's also a, a situation that has, in many ways, um, been trying to self correct for the the vulnerabilities that higher education um, had um, before the neoliberal era. And what I mean by that is that part of the neoliberal uh, neoliberalization of higher education is to um, is to for like the institution of higher education itself to learn where it was vulnerable to kind of political struggle and pressure um, in the decades before that. Right. 
And so, you know, you know, they, the, these administrators, these politicians, these media pundits, they learned from the 60s. They learned where they were vulnerable to pressure and they learned how to kind of cut us off at the pass. And, and the point that I was trying to make before, um, which I think also speaks to your point, Alexis, about uh, the, the complicity of people on both sides of the aisle in, in having a hand in, in this, right? Whether that's in their support for defunding of higher education or through kind of pushing more um, kind of power onto into the hands of, um, you know, uh, debt holders um you know for for student loans um you know th- this is this is a a major form of again discipline and and a way of kind of preventing a sort of political surge that could potentially kind of counteract um you know the system that we have now right and 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 i and the point i was trying to make before is that you know when you look at uh, a lot of the radic- student radicals in the 60s and early 70s and you know one one point always kind of struck stuck out to me right it wasn't just like you know the the kind of um what they were fighting for um or the kind of organizational structures that they developed in order to do that it was kind of the base fact that so many of them felt that they could do this kind of organizing because they could take a semester off, right? Or they didn't have that kind of massive, massive anvil of student debt just weighing over their head, right? You know, and, and um, you know, that, that opened the door for, for political possibilities for a previous generation that ours just does not have, right? Students can't take a semester off to, you know, um, just work a shitty job and then spend the rest of their time kind of politically organizing their campus community because they're, you know, they're, they're going to be freaking out about their their loans. They're going to be freaking out about the, the student health care that they may have, right? There are so many, again, forms of discipline that we have kind of instituted from the top down that have kind of, um, you know, foreclose the possibility of any sort of game-changing politics um, to happen on college campuses. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're uh, probably about to close up here, I imagine. But before you go, uh, do, do you want to say a little bit about uh, the the uh, University of Chicago uh, Grad Students Union and, and the possible upcoming um, court decision on uh grad student unions uh boy boy do i yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and we can take it we can take as long as you like too so so we just want to respect your time so but you just you know talk talk about as as much as you like it's your show cool well um yeah well i think i think it'd be a good point a good point to end on for sure because i think um you know given everything that we've been talking about here i i hope that that kind of highlights for 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 listeners like why the struggles happening on at U Chicago for with graduate students united um who have recently voted um so you know like you have um you know you have graduate students united at the University of Chicago right who are um you know who have been fighting this fight for for a long time to you know secure the kind of recognition from the university um of its union and you know who are prepared to take mass action um you know in 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 doing so and get enforcing the university to recognize it as a union and to recognize graduate students as a, as workers right and this is um kind of 
tied into everything that we've been talking about because, you know, um, graduate students are – I mean, like this. This isn't this isn't an old problem. It's again just to what I the point that I was making before about the system learning from past uh, political experiences. Like, you know, you know, the forces of reaction. You know, they're not stupid. They learn um, what works and what doesn't. And the issue of graduate student unions is a perfect example of that, right? Because the NLRB has actually gone back and forth on this issue a couple times, right? And and. You know, like with public universities, uh, like here at the University of Michigan, I'm very fortunate to be part of, you know, like GEO and our graduate student union um, is great and, and, you know, has a very kind of robust presence on campus. So shout out to them. And, you know, but but the situation at like private universities is much different. Right. And and schools like U Chicago and Columbia have been kind of waging this battle because essentially as private universities um they have had to go go through like a different sort of process right where um you know the university you know graduate students are technically kind of like you know state employees so it works kind of on a different um a different uh field right um but for but for students at um private universities like U Chicago right the 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 way that things have typically gone is that, um, you know, the students file a kind of um, uh, they, they file with the NLRB to be officially recognized as a union. And, um, you know, they essentially and, and Max, kind of, can, you, can you can you tell people what the NLRB is if they don't know, just in case? Yeah, that's the National Labor Relations Board. Um and it is a body that is now has a um, kind of Republican Trump led majority, right? And and you know they 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 make these um, you know they make these sorts of rulings. They come up with these agendas for what they want to rule on. And they have recently put graduate student unions um, on the agenda for this coming year. And it is widely expected that they are going to. Um, you know, rule and say that graduate students are not workers and that therefore they do not have the right to unionize. Right. And this is, again, it's a battle that's been playing out for decades. And, you know, it's a battle that was kind of that's been temporarily won on different kind of um, uh, grounds, but then also kind of lost. And so I guess what I mean by that is that you know, initially, graduate students at private universities were not allowed to unionize because they weren't considered um, employees, right? They were they were considered students, right? Um, but um, you know, a, a ruling about a decade and a half ago kind of said that, like, well, the the problem is that they're both, right? They're both employees and they're they're kind of um, apprentices, but one doesn't negate the other, right? If they are apprentices and and the the work that they're doing does have educational value for kind of the degree that they're trying to earn, that's separate from the fact that they are still doing um, kind of productive labor for the university, and they they fit. You know, it's like if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Like we have bosses, we we work on schedules, we get paid yeah. for the labor. It's like yeah, we are workers. Graduate students are workers, and um, that was kind of the ruling before that that these sorts of relationships. Because the the I guess the basic argument was that. Um, ultimately, graduate students were more like students than they were like workers, and so they shouldn't be able to unionize. And the NLRB ruled against that. Um, but now the tack that, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that my alma mater is, has been playing a major role in this is what they're trying to do after that. 
because they're learning is they're saying, okay, it's not about whether or not, uh, you know, they're technically employees or not. It's that what they do is not work at all. Right. You know, and, 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 you know, I had this piece in the baffler called laboring academia where I actually quoted from kind of the NLRB hearings that, um, graduate students united at U Chicago and the University of Chicago lawyers kind of had, you know, it was a public hearing and the university lawyers were, were saying they're like, you know, their whole case was like what graduate students do on a daily basis is not work. Right. And one of the examples they gave was like, you know, uh, graduate students working in, you know, a chem lab, uh, most of their experiments fail. And so it's not work. And like the entire room burst into laughter because they're like, that's fucking, <laughs> that, that's fucking chemistry. That's what you do. Right. I mean, <laughs> that is yeah. work. I and, have a chemistry degree and I can personally testify that whether you're professional right. or not, most of your experiments don't work out. That's why they're called experiments. <laughs> right. And it's just, I mean, it's so cynical. And it, and the thing is, is that this new NLRB hearing that we're anticipating that will kind of, and again, we're all preparing for the eventuality that they will rule that, that graduate students are not workers and they do not have the right to unionize. And I guess to, to kind of make a, a, a point that I was trying to make before is that what, what student, what um, graduate student unions at places like Columbia and U Chicago have been trying to do is to um, force their university's hands to just go ahead and recognize them before the NLRB issues a ruling, right? And so the the that that's kind of like what um, some uni- um, graduate student unions have been successful at doing, but universities like Chicago have been essentially trying to you know um, it's like in basketball they've been trying to wait out the clock. Right. Because they have, they're hanging on to like a, a small lead and they will do anything they possibly can to not recognize their graduate student unions. And because they are hoping that someone like Trump would come in and appoint, you know, people to the NLRB who would ultimately take the problem off their hands. And so the U, U Chicago will eventually be able to say, like, Dean Boyer can go up and say, like, oh, we. You know, we never officially recognized it, but the NLRB said that, you know, that we can't or that graduate students can't unionize. So it's not our problem. Right. And and so they get to keep their hands clean, even though this whole time they could have, you know, given graduate students the sort of recognition that they deserve. But they're just cynically waiting around and waiting out the clock at the expense of the people who make that university run, the people who teach these classes, the people, you know, like who are just, you know, working on. On shitty wages um, just to to just to get by and who are you know doing so much for these institutions of higher learning and who are getting um, treated with such utter contempt and disrespect from the people you know like who operate at the top of these institutions and it makes me really really and I, I mean I'm speaking here as a graduate student and as an alumnus nothing else right I mean like you know I, I, I'm just I'm sickened um, of my alma mater I, I express nothing but love and solidarity for graduate students um, united and I think that you know, I wrote this in other pieces. It's like, you know, these 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 cynical arguments about why graduate students are not workers or why the work that we do at grad, in grad school is not technically work, right? If you want to put that to the test, then withhold it, right? You know, like if you if you want to prove that it's work, let's see how the university will do without without it, right? I mean, like, you know, again, I'm I'm just kind of using um 
you know, like Dean Boyer's kind of talking points, um, you know, to the same effect. I'm like, okay, if it's not grad student work, then you should be fine without it. Shouldn't you? Right. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, like, and, and they would be fucked without that. And so again, it's just, it all kind of comes down to what we were saying before. And, and you guys said, um, so well is that, you know, it's also cynical and no one really believes it. It's ultimately, it's a form of discipline. It's a form of control and, and, and of gaining power over people. And, and that's really what it's, what it's about. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good spot to, to end on. Um, Maximilian Alvarez, thanks for coming on the show. Um, check out, uh, working people podcast at working pod on Twitter and, um, his, uh, many, many articles in the baffler and truth out and other places. We'll, Cur- we'll link current to some affairs. Of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure. My friend. Solidarity. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on guys. Solidarity. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.